The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. If you're new here, uh, welcome. My name is Tyler. I am actually the worship pastor here at Story City Church. But Pastor Matt, our teaching pastor, is on his family vacation for the year. And so I get the opportunity to step in. So welcome. Um, So we're starting a new series this morning called You Asked For It. And what we've done with this series is we're letting you guys text in and say, this is something I'm curious about, I'd like to know about, questions about the Bible. Let me just say, uh, we've had this open for about three weeks for you to text in. You guys were not messing around. Uh, Your questions, well done, some real stumpers in there. Um, And so as I look through the list and pray this morning, the Lord really highlighted the issue of forgiveness for me. Um, And... uh, It's something that's been on my heart for a while, and I just want to say, I think the reason for that is as we enter into a new year, forgiveness is ultimately about our healing. It's ultimately about us not living enslaved, and I really believe that if we can lay some things down here at the beginning of the year and walk in forgiveness and benevolence and love with those in our lives, uh, then there's good things waiting for us. So... um, That said, in July of 2016, the NPR podcast, Invisibilia, uh, ran a story uh, about eight friends who were in Washington, D.C. on a warm summer night, Uh, and they were sitting around a table in a backyard drinking French wine, eating cheese, and toasting to a new restaurant that one of the ladies in the group had just opened that went incredibly well. Uh, They describe it in the podcast as a magical evening, just one of those wonderful summer nights under the stars. Uh, And the man largely narrating the story is a man named Michael Rabdo, who was there with his wife and 14-year-old daughter, so three of the eight there at the table. And he tells the story that around 10 p.m. at night, suddenly a man man comes in the backyard, and this man is wearing a high-end sweatsuit. He's middle-aged, about average height, and he pulls a gun out. And he proceeded to hold the gun to Michael Rabdo's friend Christina first, and then to Michael's wife. He held the gun straight to her head, and he said, y'all give me all your money or I'm going to start shooting. He looked anxious. He looked scared. He kept saying it over and over and over again, give me your money or I'm going to start shooting. And it fell silent, as you can imagine. No longer was this a dreamy summer night under the stars. People were terrified. The strange thing about this is that no one in that group happened to have money that night. All of their wallets were empty. No one had cash. So they instantly started searching for a way to slow this man down, to dissuade him, to get him to change his desired course here. They started with guilt. Um, As you can imagine, they said things like, do you know what your mother would think of you right now? I mean, come on, man, please don't do this. This only heightened the man's aggravation. He said, I don't have a mother Michael, who's narrating this, says at this point that he remembers thinking to himself, this is going to end really badly. Things were escalating. We're all about to get seriously, seriously hurt. This is not going to end well. And then out of nowhere, Michael's friend Christina, who had initially had the gun held to her hand, spoke up. And she says, you know, we're here, uh, sir, we're here toasting and drinking French wine, celebrating a new restaurant one of our friends just opened. Would you, would you like a glass of wine? As they tell the story, they say the man's facial expression instantly softened and changed. He reached out his hand and grabbed a glass of wine and sipped it, and he said to the group, it's a good glass of wine. It's a really good glass of wine. And they, as you can imagine, said, well, please have more. 
sit down. Uh, we've got cheese as well. Please sit down. And for a few minutes, this group of now nine sat around a table in the backyard, drinking French wine together. The man put his gun in his pocket. Suddenly, the strangest thing, he says, can I, can I get a hug? And Christina, who had held the hand, had had the gun held to her, stands up and hugs this man. And the group heard him mutter something under his breath. He said, I think I've I think I've come to the wrong place. He was saying it to himself. <clears throat> they all said, well, that's okay. We all, we all get there at times. That's okay. Just... And then he said, you know, can I get a group hug? <laughs> and they tell in the story, they say this incredibly awkward moment, but they all stood up and they gathered around this man and they gave him a group hug this incredibly awkward moment. And then, wine glass in hand, the story ends with the man walking out of the backyard. Uh, in the podcast, they then, they then bring in this a man. Uh, his name is Chris Hopwood, and he is a professor of psychology at Michigan State University. He's given his life to studying how people interact. See, the story ends with these people going inside. They just thought a miracle had happened. They went inside and they hugged each other. But Chris Hopwood comes in and he says, this was not a miracle. This was actually something much more measurable, something much more explainable. When Chris studies uh, psychology, he studies something specifically called complementarity, which is how people interact. He films people interacting. He measures their responses second by second. And they actually track a data point at every half second interval to see how people are responding to one another. And what they found in the study of complementarity is that people naturally mirror each other as they interact. So if you're warm to somebody kind, that warmth begets more warmth. They become warm towards you. If you're hostile, they become hostile in turn. Now, there is a way to break this pattern, and what Chris Hopward describes it is, he says it's non-complementarity or non-complementary behavior. And he says it's incredibly difficult to do, like one of the hardest things in the world to do. But when it's exercised, it has the potential often to completely shake up a situation, to turn a hard 180. He references that people like Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa Really what they were exercising here is an ability to exercise non-complementary behavior. He references Selma and says that the March on Selma, all these major peace events, really were just people returning good for evil. Now the Bible is chocked full of places, specifically from the words of Jesus where he tells us, do not repay evil for evil, but I tell you, repay evil for good. If someone hits you, turn the other cheek. These are, this is really getting down to the root essence of what it means to be a Christian. And I got to tell you, as I opened up God's word by his grace to study forgiveness this week, I regretted it immediately. <laughs> Because this is a tough, tough subject. It plunges us into the depths of what it really means to be a Christian, and it's hard. But really what we're asked to do today is to illustrate and live living embodiments of non-complementary behavior. And today, as we look at Jesus' teachings on forgiveness, we're going to see how just how high the call really is. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you um, for this story. I mean, it's a powerful story of grace being transformative, and that is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, to have your life radically turned upside down by grace, to be one way and see something beautiful 
and allow that beauty to transform you. And so this morning, as we open your word and read your words, would you give us the grace to heed them, to take them to heart, and would you help this congregation and this church be a church marked by forgiveness because it is a church that has been forgiven by the blood of Jesus for all who would claim it. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So our text this morning is Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn there. If you don't, we have Bibles out in the lobby. We'd love for you to take one home. There's nothing more important than having that book in your hand this morning. So let's start by looking at our text, Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. We read, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? So here we're going to see Peter coming to a question. The, book, the, the entire chapter of Matthew 18 is devoted to how Christians should live with one another. Jesus is teaching on how they should fellowship inside of the church, how they should respond to non-believers outside the church. And Peter's been hearing this, and he's coming to Jesus with some questions. Like, Jesus, you said all this. Now I want to ask about forgiveness. But before we dive into that, I want to just say we need to define a term or two this morning because if we're going to have a discussion about forgiveness, we need to make sure we're all talking about the same thing. See, forgiveness is, a, is kind of a... It's kind of a word that floats around a lot, like fellowship or whatever. It's like, what do you mean? Like a potluck, fellowship, forgiveness. What do you really mean by forgiveness? So I want to just attempt really quickly to, to lay some groundwork before we start to drive on the road. Uh, Puritan pastor and theologian Thomas Watson gave a wonderfully detailed defini definition of forgiveness in his commentary on the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says, when he's telling us to pray, he says, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive those, as we forgive those who have as we forgive our debtors. And he says this, so this is a good working definition, I think, of what forgiveness looks like in action. It should be on the screen. We forgive others when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but we wish well to them. We grieve their calamities. We pray for them. We seek reconciliation with them and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. So that's, I really liked that definition. I wanted to use it because I think that's a really holistic definition. I think it covers a lot of ground, so much so that if we really dive into it and start studying it and all the things that it's going to require of us, it should freak us out. Like really, that all these things, the standard that it sets for, for forgiveness is hard. Taken seriously, it should stop us in our tracks. It's gonna tell us this, that forgiveness done Jesus' way is going to hurt. It's going to be non-complementary behavior. It's returning good for evil. That's why Pastor Tim Keller says it this way. Choosing to forgive is choosing to engage in voluntary suffering. It's saying, I am going to enter in and allow all of the wrong that's been done to fall on me and not choose to push it back on the person that, ha that has wronged me. And Keller gives three ways that we allow ourselves to absorb the cost. Specifically, I wanna go through them really quickly. He says, one way that we absorb the cost is we refuse to seek vengeance for the wrong. And he gives four ways that we do that really quickly. He says, we don't engage in making cutting remarks towards people in public to, to downplay them. We, secondly, he says, we don't demand or control more of them and walk as if they owe us, but we act with grace towards them. Thirdly, he says that we don't punish them with this kind of sort of like veiled self-righteous mercy that makes them see our goodness and so they can feel shamed for their badness again. But no, from a genuine heart of love, we simply lavish them with goodness. And fourthly, he says we don't avoid them or become cold. That's a really hard standard as well. But what he says is that all of these things, if we engage in, in this kind of behavior, it actually in some way medicates us, right? 
It makes it a little easier. It feels warm. It feels good to get back at somebody that way. And to not do that is to allow all the weight of where we were wrong to still just stay on our shoulders. So we don't, we, we allow, it's voluntary suffering in that we refuse to seek vengeance for the wrong. Secondly, he says, we refuse to employ innuendo or spin. What that means is we choose not to gossip, to slander them, to find subtle ways of tearing down their reputation. Even if there's denial, plausible deniability in the way we do it, we just avoid doing that altogether. We speak well of them in the public sphere, even though we're hurt by them. Thirdly, he says, we refuse to indulge in ill will. What that means is we don't sit around on our couch replaying the conversation over and over and over and again in our head until by the 10th time through, we're just more mad at them. And I, I gotta say, we, we've all been guilty of all of these. I know I have. So we have a sober conversation in front of this morning. This isn't a reductionistic, idealistic, platitudinous, forgiveness is easy, just do it kind of conversation. This is a no. We're entering into voluntary suffering just as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, entered into voluntary suffering for us. So that's what forgiveness is, but I also want to clear a little ground here and say, what, is forgive, what isn't forgiveness? What doesn't forgiveness do? Because that's important too. Number one, forgiveness does not excuse evil. By its definition, forgiveness deals with the reality of evil. It doesn't simply pretend no harm or evil has been done. It simply engages it by allowing it to fall upon itself. Forgiveness takes evil seriously. If no harm had been done, it wouldn't be necessary at all. And it would not be the monumental task it is. Secondly, forgiveness does not make light of the wrongs and injustices we've experienced. So I wanna just just pump the brakes for one moment and say this. There are some people in this room that this is a harder conversation for you than others. You have had the type of evil done to you and wrongs done to you um, that are life-altering. Scars, emotional, spiritual, even physical scars that... it's gonna take a lifetime to work through that you'll never be the same from. And I wanna say that talking about forgiveness is not to make light of your pain, all right? It is not to say that doesn't matter, Just this is not a just get over it conversation. This is offering a better way forward. See, the only way that scripture gives to truly move into healing and restoration from forgiveness, no matter how bad you've been wounded, Jesus is gonna tell us is to forgive. So I don't wanna take light of your suffering, but what I do want to do is hold the Bible out, allow it to press its weight on us, to offer us healing, and say that this is all we have. This is all we have this side of Jesus' return, is forgiveness. And lastly, I just wanna preemptively answer a question, then we'll get into our text. See, some of us in this room might be thinking, okay, so the classic sense of forgiveness is probably this. I wrong somebody or somebody wrongs me. I realize that I've done something wrong, so I go to them and apologize, or they come and confront me and say, hey, this hurt me. We have a conversation, there's reconciliation. I apologize, they forgive me, and we go forward. That's like classical forgiveness. But what about the situations that are more complex? Because life is not always that clean and easy. What about the situations where the person has no idea they've hurt me, where they don't have ears to hear they hurt me, or even at worst, they are continually hurting me? Like they continue to do the thing that is causing me harm and pain. How do I walk in forgiveness in that situation? And what's it gonna look like? That's a lot more complex and hard. Is forgiveness even possible in that situation? Well, the answer is yes. 
it is, and it's going to look different. See, you may never with that person until they come to their wits and senses and repent. You may have to press, put some boundaries up in that relationship for the, the issue of your own health. You may, not enter, you may not be golfing buddies next month, but what the Bible does say in 1 Peter 3, 9, it tells us how we are to act and interact with these people. It says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So there's a blessing in forgiving. And regardless of the other person's behavior, the call on us is non-complementary behavior. It is to repay their evil with good. Jesus demonstrated this on the cross. 1 Peter 2.23 tells us that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. We can call this this morning something like one-sided forgiveness or enemy love. We may never experience the full healing of reconciliation we long for. Boundaries may need to be put in place, but we still are called to love and from the heart to seek the good and restoration as far as it depends on us, to live at peace with all men. Okay, so that's a lot of kind of foreground laid. Let's now move to the text, Matthew 18, verses 21 through 22. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. So what we see here is Peter coming to Jesus with a question, and he's going to say, Jesus, should I forgive my brother? Like, you just gave us this whole discourse on how to forgive, how to rebuke, and then how to restore. And now I want to know, like, how much of this has required me? Like, seven times? Now, Peter's saying seven times because in Amos chapter 1, verse 3, the teaching of that day that most rabbis taught was that you forgive somebody three times. That was kind of the teaching of the day. So I kind of picture Peter like when I do push-ups. Like when I do push-ups, I do 20, and then I get to the end, and it hurts really bad, and I say, I'm just going to do one more, 21, 21, and I feel really good about myself. What Peter's actually done is he's doubled the number and then added one. He's like, Jesus, look at me. I not only doubled what the rabbis are teaching, I added one on top. <laughs> I'm, I'm very special. I don't know, I don't know if you've noticed Jesus. And Jesus is going to have a surprising response. He's going to say, Peter, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times, or depending on your translation, seven times 70. So why would Jesus respond this way? What's he getting at? At first, at first glance, we might go, okay, Jesus is just upping the ante. He's just saying a lot more, Peter. But commentators all across the board agree on this, that the point of this, whether it's seven times 70 or seven, seven times, it really doesn't matter because the point of the text is this. Peter, don't just get a bigger jar, take the lid off. Like we are forgiving to the stars. There's no limit on your forgiveness. Now, if we want to establish why, we need to take a little journey together. Can we do that? Um, I want to travel back to one of the first civilizations ever founded on planet Earth, the city of Enoch in Genesis chapter 4. Okay, so Enoch was founded by Cain, who was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, so a long, long time ago. Now, Cain has his own story that we got to tell as a little backstory to get to where we're going in the city of Enoch. So Cain, most of us probably know this story. Um, him and his brother Abel bring an offering before the Lord one day. And the Lord looks, we're told, looks upon Abel's, but he does not look upon Cain's. And Cain becomes, his, the scripture would say, his face fell. He becomes downcast, angry, despondent. He's very upset that God liked Abel's gift, but not his. And the Lord confronts Cain in grace and says, Cain, why are you so upset, man? I mean, I know this isn't your greatest moment, but if you do well, it's going to go well for you. So just do well and you'll be okay. 
But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. So Cain, be careful. This is a big moment for you, Cain. Like respond with repentance and turn back towards me. As the story goes, Cain does not do well. He's very jealous. He lures his brother Cain into a field and commits the first murder earth has ever known. The blood of Cain of Abel cries out to the Lord from the ground and the Lord confronts Cain for the murder and says, um, what have you done? Where's your brother? And Cain says, I'm not, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know. And so as a punishment for this grievous sin, the Lord tells Cain two things. One, that the ground is no longer going to bear fruit for him when he works it. And secondly, because of this, he will be a wanderer all his days. He's going to spend the rest of his life wandering. This is more than Cain can bear. He is not happy about this news. And his response to the Lord is to say, if I'm a wanderer in this cruel world, I will surely be killed. I'll surely, it's only a matter of time till I'm dead. And the Lord responds by saying, okay, you make a valid point. What I'm gonna do, I'm gonna put a mark on you. And this mark, this is mysterious, but this mark is going to speak to every nation, to every person, that if they kill you, I myself will take vengeance on them seven times over. So there's our first clue to where we're getting at with the 77. It's related to vengeance. And the Lord promises Cain in grace that if anyone kills him, he will protect him through vengeance seven times over. So fast forward the tape back to Enoch. We're six generations from Cain now. We're six generations down the line. And we meet, and, 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 uh, and Enoch has become a buzzing metropolis, okay? And we meet in this city a man named Lamech. Now, Lamech is not the kind of guy you're going to invite over for a Thanksgiving meal. Uh, one of the things that the text tells us about him is that he had multiple wives. It's the first reference to that in Scripture, which means this is the guy that invented polygamy. Take that, Thomas Edison. So probably not the kind of guy you're going to want to have over for your meal. We're in Genesis 4, by the way, right now. And we're told that by his two wives, he has three sons. Now, the first son is named Jabal, and Jabal is a, is a farmer. The second son is named Jubal, and we're told that Jubal makes stringed instruments, and he's a musician. The third son is by his second wife, Zillah, and she gives birth to Tubal Cain. Unfortunate name, Tubal Cain. And we're told, unlike his kind of underachieving brothers who are a hippie musician and a veganist farmer or whatever, where I'm playing, this guy is in technology, okay? Tubal Cain, we're told, is developing all kinds of new technologies. He's the white collar brother. He's driving a Tesla. They're driving Honda Civics like me, okay? This dude's doing good for himself. He's developing a new technology out of iron and bronze. And then that's where the text leaves us. And all of a sudden, it says this guy Lamech, these are his sons, all of a sudden it tells us he starts singing a song. A, a song out of nowhere. Okay, let's, let's hear your song. Now, I'm going to warn you. I'm going to give you a little warning, parental advisory warning. This is the first example of gangster rap ever. Okay? This, uh, this song is complete with womanizing, polygamy, murder, and it's not just talking about him. It's, it's like, this is awesome. Okay? So let's, let's hear the next song. It's called The Song of the Sword by most commentators, and it's in Genesis 4, 23 through 24. Let's hear from Lamech. Lamech. Ada and Zillah, singing to his wives, plural. Listen to me, wives of Lamech. Hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain 
is avenged seven times than Lamech 77 times. Okay, weird song, Lamech, thank you. But the thoughtful observer might hear, this song is called the Song of the Sword, and there are no swords in this song. Why would it be called the Song of the Sword? What is happening here? Well, what has happened is Lamech, apparently a young man, wounded him. And he has taken one of two volcanes' new tools and turned it into a weapon. And he has killed this young man for simply wounding him. And he is not just, he's, and he's feeling himself for it. He's like, check me out. I can take vengeance into my own hands. Cain, that was so cute. The Lord, you poor puppy, had to put a mark on you to protect you. I don't need a mark. I have the power of vengeance in my own hands, and I have the power to exercise it whenever I want. And it's not just seven times, Cain, it's 77 times. Now, I don't think he was saying 77 times, 78th time, okay, somebody can kill me. I think he was saying, this is unlimited vengeance. This is to the stars. No one can touch me. He was feeling real proud about it. This particularly odd last, last line. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Now, other than the fact that as a songwriter, I don't like that as the last line of a song because it rhymed the word times with times. And I just think that's lazy songwriting. Um, <laughs> What is he getting at with this? It's what we just talked about. He's, he's boasting. His glory is in his shame. He's boasting in his murder. And he's speaking of his unlimited vengeance. So fast forward the tape and head back to Peter standing before Jesus. Jesus, is seven times enough? Because that's, that's quite a lot. Jesus, peering back through the ages, seeing all of the destruction and sadness and grief and murder and pain that has flown from a heart of vengeance that was established through Cain and Lamech, who would not believe that God was good enough to fight for them, but took things into their own hands. He looks at Peter and he says, I tell you, Lamech boasted in 77 times vengeance, unlimited vengeance. That is the heart that leads to death. The heart that I've come to reinstate is different. It's its opposite. It's a heart of unlimited forgiveness and mercy. You see what he's doing? He's turning things upside down. He's putting everything on its head. Jesus wants us to see two things here. Number one, he wants us to see that at its root, an unforgiving heart is just simply a vengeful heart. It could be veiled in many ways, but there is no passive unforgiveness. It doesn't exist. Unforgiveness is vengeance. It's the heart of Lamech. It's saying to God, you're not good. I can't trust you. I don't need you to rule my life. I will rule my life. I will fight for me. I do not need you to fight for me. So to put it in the positive, Jesus is saying, at its root, a forgiving heart entrusts itself to God's care and God's justice. It humbly stands before God, even as it's wounded, and says, God, you're able to take care of me. I do not need to take matters into my own hands. You suffered, I can suffer. You chose to love your enemies, I can choose to love my enemies. This is the heart of Christ, and this is the heart of all who would come to Christ. It's the heart he came to reinstate. So at this point, Peter and the rest of the disciples hearing unlimited forgiveness probably thought a lot similarly to what you and I would think if we're really honest with ourselves right now. 
that doesn't just seem impossible, it sounds entirely unnecessary and unrealistic. Like, really, I'm going to make myself a doormat over and over and over again, Jesus? Like, that's just, okay, that's good for you, but it's not going to work for me. Do you realize how many times I've tried to get this person to change? Do you realize how many times? Do you realize how much they'll hurt me again if I keep forgiving, if I don't remove myself, if I don't put up walls? Well, lucky for us, Jesus knows what we're thinking because he's God. And he's got a parable for us. So get ready. Verse 23 through 24 here. Therefore, Jesus launches into a story. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. So Jesus has a story. He's introducing two characters, a king and a servant. Now, this king has people who owe money. He decides to call it in, and he tells us right up front that this guy owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Anyone in here ever owed anyone that much? Now, that's a literal translation. That's the translation for what is literally a talent. And a talent was a monetary unit for 20, about roughly 20 years of labor at that time. One talent was worth about what you would make for 20 years. So let's try to do some math on this, put it in American terms, Okay. If one talent is worth 20 years of labor, let's just say median, you make 50 grand a year. 20 years, I'm really bad at math, but I double checked this. 20 years at $50,000 equals $1 million. But this guy owed 10,000 of those, 10,000 talents, 10,000 amounts of 20 years of work. So that comes out, and I double checked this, to $10 billion. Billions and billions and billions of dollars. Okay, this guy owed a lot of money. He had clearly not been on the Dave Ramsey total money makeover to get in $10 billion. I don't think this guy had any cash and envelopes staffed in any underwear drawers, okay? He was living in luxury on a credit card, apparently. And what Jesus wants us to see here at this is that this is an astronomical, astronomical amount of debt. Is that how you say that word? Yes, I got it right. It's a crazy amount of debt. This guy had no hope of paying it back. It was entirely unattainable, okay? Verse 25. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Not a good day. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. Now question, do you think the king or this guy really thought that he was going to pay back $10 billion in debt just with a little patience? What's he going to do, start a Kickstarter? I don't think so. This guy knows. He's in over his head. The king knows it too. Now, every parable that Jesus tells us is meant to have one moment of real shock that turns things upside down and makes us go, whoa, and change the way we think. This parable has two, and we're about to read the first one. It reads simple, but this verse is meant to shock us, and it would have shocked those who heard it. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now, why should this be shocking to us? Because that's not how the world works. My wife and I just finished paying off our student loans, and we live in an interest world. Okay, we live in a world that says, you owe me money, I'm going to get more from you out of it. We do not live in a go-free, unscathed, forgiven world. So this is turning things upside down again. This is not the way the world works. This king is exercising extraordinary non-complimentary behavior. This man has done something awful in allowing himself to become $10 billion indebted to the king, and the king is repaying him with extraordinary mercy, extraordinary kindness, lavish goodness that should make this man 
fall to his knees and he was about to lose his wife, his kids, everything he had, and it's gone, forgiven. It should shock us. Verse 28, we continue. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Quickly, that's actually a hundred denarius, which a denarius was equal to about a day's wage. So on our term, on our scale that we've invented, we're talking about a hundred days wages, so less than a third, a quarter to a third of a year's salary, so like 15 to 20K this guy owed him compared to his $10 billion. Notice too that he went looking for him. It says he went out and found one of his fellow servants. Verse 28, he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Sound familiar? But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Now, this is the second moment that's meant to shock us, right? And I think we all know why. This servant is put in a situation that mirrors his previous one to the T, but this time he's on the other side with the opportunity to show mercy or to give judgment. Now, we would expect a man who's just been forgiven $10 billion, given his family back, his life back, to be full of joy, overflowing with benevolence, amazing mercy, running around the city saying, I was going to die and lose everything, but I'm free now. But instead, we see a man that's going out on a hunt. He's looking for someone that owes him 20 grand. I better get that money. And when this man falls at his feet, we see that the boulder of forgiveness has fallen into the water of his life and there have been no ripples. Not a single one. Nothing happened. The water swallowed it whole. And that should shock us. Not only will he not forgive as he's been forgiven, he won't even show patience. Again, this is non-complimentary behavior, but it's in the negative. It's turned backwards. See, he's returning evil to the king in a way. The king has forgiven him, let him go free, and yet he still has a heart of vengeance, the heart of Lamech, the heart of Cain. Every breath of air that this man takes is a gift of the king's grace, and yet he walks with a heart of vengeance. Verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. Uh Uh-oh. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to? Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then this tough challenge from our Lord. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So that's really heavy. I've wrestled with it all week. (laughs) It's meant to be heavy. That's one place I've landed. Jesus wants us to feel weight here. He wants the word of God to press on us. He wants us to see that he takes forgiveness very, very seriously. But he also wants us to see this. That no matter how deeply, Christian, you have been wounded, no matter how deeply I've been wounded, no matter how wronged we've been by another, it is a small portion, a small offense to forgive compared to the amazing grace we have received through Jesus Christ, our Savior, before God the Father. See, the solution to unforgiveness 
is understanding and believing the gospel. It's seeing how much you've been forgiven. That's why Ephesians 4.32 tells us, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Why? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. See, spiritually speaking, and this is, we're, we're delving into what the Bible says right now. Like, this isn't things you can touch or feel, but this is a spiritual reality. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. That's Jesus Christ. But until I come to a recognition of my sin, confess it before God, acknowledge my need for a savior, repent of my self-righteousness, repent of my wickedness and my sin, and say, Jesus, change me, transform me, surrender my life into his lordship and care, before the throne of God above, I have no strong and perfect plea. I am a sinner covered in my shame. And in Romans 6, 23 would tell us that the wages of that sin is death, both in this life and eternal death in the next. It's not good news. But just as the king in this story has shown unbelievable and inexplicable mercy to this servant, so he has to us. How? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take our debt. See, the just payment for sin is death. So what did Jesus do? He came and he died a death in our place so that when Jesus was on that cross, God could pour his just anger and wrath towards sin out upon Jesus Christ 100% so that he could look on all who would come to him by faith, no longer as enemies of God, but as sons and daughters, ransomed, redeemed, delighted in, forgiven forever. That is good news. You have to put the backdrop of darkness up so that you can see the light shine. And the light is very, very bright. Unbelievable forgiveness in Jesus. We have been ransomed from eternity apart from God and given eternity and joy with him. It's incredible mercy. And here's the promise this morning. Those who have experienced that kind of mercy truly and felt it in their hearts this scripture wants us to see that they will become merciful. They will begin to show grace and become gracious, imperfectly, repentant, stumble one step forward, one step backwards, two steps forward, one step backwards. Imperfect is the road of sanctification. It doesn't make you perfect, but the trajectory of your life is now marked by repentance, which ushers you closer and closer to Jesus and closer and closer to the things Jesus is about. And at the heart of those things is forgiveness. So if you find yourself this morning hearing this and it feels like a weight crushing you, because you feel unable to forgive. You're struggling, you're wrestling, you're stuck in bitterness and resentment and you just don't think you can pull yourself out beyond it. The solution is not try harder. The solution is not be very afraid. The solution is this. Preach the gospel to yourself. You are forgiven. Jesus has given it. It's done. It's paid. It's over. It's settled. Preach that to yourself and remind yourself that if you don't and if you can't forgive, then ultimately it probably means that you're wearing a lot of weight that you don't need to wear towards yourself too because it's an indicator that you're not experiencing and believing the gospel. You are not walking in the felt reality of your own forgiveness. So at that moment, if that's you, cast yourself upon the grace of Jesus. He's ready and willing to forgive and he will. Say, Lord, help me to experience this kind of mercy and that will make you a forgiving person. So back to our opening story. I left out one detail. 
the people go inside and they're rejoicing in the, in the miracle that this man who had held a gun to their heads sat and ate wine and cheese with them. And as they leave and head to their cars, they look on the curb and they see a single wine glass neatly placed on the curb, not smashed, not discarded carefully, carelessly, placed. This is a picture of what mercy and non-complementary behavior do. This man who had only moments ago held a gun to their head is now caring for their wine glass, even in the details. Christian, you are forgiven. You are loved. You are embraced. You are called valuable and lovely and worthy all because of grace, all because of what Jesus has done for you. Period. End of story. It's over. You have nothing left to earn or prove. Let that kind of mercy and forgiveness melt your heart to forgive those that have hurt you. And that will create a church here at Story City that has its defenses up against the attacks of the enemy and the flesh and creates unity and the bond of the spirit. And that's what we're after. Let me pray for us. Father, this is a tough text. It's a tough subject. But you have healing for us if we are willing to walk the path of the suffering of forgiveness. I pray for the relationships in this room right now that are broken and hurting, for the hearts that are weary from the, the, the heavy weight of unforgiveness they've been carrying. Help us to lay that down. Help us to see our crucified Savior with his arms spread wide in mercy towards us so that we can run to those that are needing forgiveness who we need to ask forgiveness from. And let this be a year that is marked at Story City Church and beyond it by unity, compassion, and grace. It's in Jesus' name, amen.